for the very first time, there are five people on a podcast. <laughs> yes. We have four microphones and the internet on our favor. So we are joined today by Dr. Dustin Kieschnick, who I will have him introduce himself because he has a lot of different uh, things that he's doing in his professional life right now. Mm-hmm. Um, as you guys kind of see me circle cameras around, you'll likely see kind of a like, hit where we're looking. So we're going to look left and light, right and all that. Um, but also joining us today, we have Caroline, who we're uh, familiar with as well. We have Dr. Katie and Carlo, as we have all f- are familiar with as well. But um, b- without further ado, really, um, uh, I'm going to refer you refer to you as Dustin because it's just easier that way. And I think we kind of established that. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of how this connection was started. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm always thrown off a little bit by that question because like my, my life has had so many different paths yeah. <laughs> and journeys that have sort of Seems led to be a me theme. To, this, to this one yeah. spot. But um, but I, I think just a little bit about um, me. I, I grew up in Texas. Uh, when I was 18, I joined the military. I, I served in the Marines for nine years. Um, I got out and was able to go to uh, get a business degree thanks to the GI Bill. Um, I did some uh, did some time in um, in the corporate sector for a little bit, and during that time, I started to see within the veteran community um, how people were suffering. People that I knew that I'd served with were really suffering, and so I started by volunteering at the at the VA um, and working with homeless vets. And I figured out, hey, this actually feels like a calling to me. To, to work in mental health, to understand trauma, suicide, all of these things that were affecting the community. Um, from there, I, I went to PGSP Stanford, um, got my got my doctorate, um, did my a lot of my training at the VA, and uh, now I now I work uh, at uh, UCSF doing digital um, digital scalable therapeutics, uh, researching efficacy on those and and I recently got connected with the Shanti project and pause where I started becoming more interested in veterinary um, mental health mm-hmm. because of the just some of the challenges that are affecting the community mm-hmm. currently which are actually I think in there's some parallels to what affects the the veteran community mm-hmm. as well so it's an opportunity for me to help both sets of vets yeah absolutely <laughs> nice um and that was actually so this connection uh came purely out of the internet so we i think we got followed by the veterinary mental health group on instagram your bio came up and i was like well clearly he needs to come on the podcast because um if uh, anybody listened to uh the podcast that i just did with andrea 62 um she she is a you know she was an eight-year army reserves veteran um and had that chance to talk about like what are the parallels from your perspective and then um we've talked about it i think a few different times about how like what are our similarities here with the military and veterinary worlds and uh, now we have more overlap. So, um, yeah, thank you for joining us. I appreciate you being here. You are 100% new to three people in the room. So I will pause here to see what you guys want to learn about Dr. Kieschnick and see kind of where your head's at. Yeah, yeah so I think, you know, um, again, for some of our longtime listeners, uh, and then uh, obviously here, Dustin, um, you know, one of the 
one of the things that we talk about a lot is kind of this idea of shared reality and, you know, sort of what that reality is. And I, I think what we often have a hard time with is the, the, the kind of coined phrase that gets thrown around these days about my truth. So I, I don't know that necessarily my truth is the same as a shared reality. And I think that's where often conflict comes into ultimately what we see in the workplace or culturally or even within our community and our families and so on and so forth. Um, but, you know, kind of in, in, that, in that world where inevitably we start talking about mental health, um, you know, what we, what we try to engage on this idea of shared reality is really a solutions-based uh, perspective. So it's not just a matter of like, you know, let's just talk about it, but it's more like, what are we actually going to do about it? And I think, right. I think that's where um, it then kind of just spirals out of control depending on kind of who's, I don't want to say in charge, but who's kind of out in front and who's controlling the conversation and who's directing the conversation or who is allowing open conversation to be had that may not actually be that productive. Um, right. And I think that's where what, what we often are challenged with is, you know, not necessarily being out on our own as the only ones talking about shared reality and sort of a solutions-based, um, you know, uh, process, I guess, is the right way of doing it. But it's more of um, what is most popular what is most tangible? What can we find that sort of drives our individual directive and how that actually isn't helpful, I think, is, is ultimately what it, what it boils down to is when we start to get onto online forums and, you know, some of these items where it's like it is good to engage people who have a very similar reality, um, but is it necessarily that idea of is this actually shared and is it productive? Um, and I think that's at least in, in some part uh, what kind of drove a little bit of our meeting is just kind of talking about, like, mm -hmm. you know, what would be you know, uh, in, in getting into some of these forums, I mean, uh, or even online communities or even groups or whatever happens to be um, in your experience or sort of from your perspective, uh, what have you found as sort of being like the pros and cons to those types of sort of like unregulated social media environments? Yeah, I, I, what you just said just spurred a ton of thoughts for me. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think the biggest the biggest thing or that I see it in, in two levels, right? There's a systematic problem that yep. we, I think need a shared understanding mm -hmm. to be able to approach. And I think there's individual level challenges that can actually be met in the group setting, right? Cause I think that the benefit of a group setting is that it does allow an opportunity to, to, I guess, have a shared experience yeah. and, um, a shared understanding for what somebody else is affected affected with the challenges they that affect them and how those might be somewhat similar and different from the challenges that affect me i think the the problems that i think groups a lot of times run into is that if there's if there's not really someone that really knows how to facilitate the group mm -hmm. it spiral out of control really quickly mm -hmm. yeah yeah. And, and, and it doesn't it doesn't provide sometimes the emotional safety that needs to be there for there to be therapeutic healing. Mm -hmm. One of the things when you and I had the chance to speak um, before um, we had we scheduled everything and all that um, was basically like maybe even going one step backwards in like, where are these problems actually sourced out of? Because I think that's one thing that even like, I know I don't know a lot about where mental health problems come from, um, whether it be a 
a, a, a presence of a negative item or a lack of a positive item or something like that. Um, is there anything specifically um, that you're noticing that is lacking or is a negative presence within the groups that you're working with with the Shanti group? And, um, you know, basically just like what is that reality that you're seeing maybe as um, consistencies across multiple groups? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think probably one of the most eye-opening things for me is just how in veterinary practice in general, I've learned that people are so isolated mm. as, a, as a as a practitioner or, you know, um, even I guess I imagine as staff too, I don't have as quite, quite as much familiarity mm-hmm. with that, but just how isolated people are and how they have to deal with these myriad of stressors like I have I had no appreciation or I I had no uh, understanding for just how stressful yeah, sure. <laughs> a job it is to be a veterinary and yeah. and I think that to make the, the the similarity to to the veteran community like both both uh, both communities very high stress um, both exposure to death and uh, and also like. Um, in a sense that that becomes very traumatic. Um, and I, I mean, I'm speaking to the experts on this already <laughs> because you guys, you guys experience it and, and have colleagues that experience this on a, on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think, yeah, same thing from a thought standpoint, you know, I, I kind of used to make a joke. I mean, at least the idea of this isolation is that when you're in veterinary school, whether it be technical school, nursing school, uh, doctor of veterinary medicine school, is there's this like idea where everyone is there together. We're all together as class. We're you know trying to get through these you know semesters, these uh, exams. I mean, whatever it is, there is very much this group type environment. And then once you get out into um, actual practice, it's like, oh yeah, we're all this you know close knit organization and this close knit group. And look at how great we are. Except if you're in the same zip code. You know, and then it's like, oh, well, actually, the people down the road are my competitors and I can't talk to them because what if they steal mm-hmm. my clients? Mm-hmm. You know, and that was we had talked about this at a last podcast where it's like there's so much business in today's world. And first of all, I don't believe that doctors actually own clients. I don't I don't uh, believe in that. I don't think clinics own uh, clients. I think that it's uh, people tend to go to where they are best served. Um, and if they're not getting service at one location, they're going to go somewhere else. So it's like we're holding on to this like traditional perspective of we have this, you know, really small um uh, access or a small group of access as far as to, to build a business upon and that I think further adds to our isolation. Uh, we even had a, a mentee that had come through I think um, towards the end of the fall. Um, she's working now kind of locally in the area um, and her and I just had crossed paths because she's working at a different, after a different practice. We had kind of crossed paths by phone and I was like honestly if you need anything just like give me a call or shoot me a text. I'm like here's my cell phone number. She's like, she's like really you'd be willing to do that? I'm like yeah I, I mean what you know it doesn't yeah. matter to me like you know we're here to support we're, we're here to support we're here to kind of serve you know different ways um, so again I, I, I agree with you that you know kind of systematically there's these these fundamentals of old business practice that I think are contributing to that isolation um, you know in a way that we're just unwilling to let go of I mean it, we always say as an industry we're just gonna dig our heels in it's like this is the way it's always been you know it's the way it's always gonna be but well and I think that 
to take a step back, right? So you said in school, like there's you, you have your classmates. So there's yeah. like this group where you have that safety or that safety net. But to a certain extent, it also teaches you or kind of um, fashions you to be ready to take on the enemy, right? Because, oh, my classmates, this is my cohort, and we have to do better than, you know, you're always in competition. With the other classes. They already pit you against each other. With the tech students, with the interns, with, you know. um, And so then we get into... Uh, you know, you get into your first practice and it's like, okay, where, where is my cohort? And so you're already, like, you've already been taught to like find the dividing lines instead of taught to become a team. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's, that has, uh, I mean, to your credit, you know, kind of bringing it back to the school level. um, That's actually part of what we're trying to do with the house system through Michigan state is really trying to fund a program that has more, more ideals of unity. Um, And again, kind of having this, this idea of, um, you know, shared purpose. I mean, shared well being. I mean, those are kind of things that we stand by, um, you know, within our organization, but the, um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, it does teach out is that we are exclusively an industry that's beset in hierarchy, but also like hierarchical tradition where it's like, we're, we're also, we're fighting hierarchy, but we're also fighting tradition and all of these things are being ingrained in us culturally as, um, and this, uh, you know, kind of comes to the, actually perfectly leads into the trauma part that you were talking about, mm-hmm. um, is that there's been a fundamental shift in the industry, um, you know, from when I was a kid, you know, to the human animal bond spectrum has had a huge upswing. I mean, exponential growth of the human animal bond within the last decade to 15 years. Um, and I, th- I think what ends up happening is, you know, f- I would argue that, you know, depending on where you grew up, what demographics you were, what kind of household you were in, income, that kind of stuff, is that if you had gone through sort of the veterinary curriculums and into the industry as kind of like a middle bond spectrum where it's like, you know, you absolutely love your animals, you know, man's best friend type thing, you know, they're part of the family, but you're not quite to the high end of like fur baby, um, is that you're probably more well prepared for like the trauma of Mm -hmm. death. Um, Whereas if you as a veterinary professional are coming into the industry now as those low 20s, you know, those low Mm -hmm. to mid 20s, they've only ever grown up in a world where we have had an increasing bond spectrum where now we're you know we're really now teaching them they've grown up into the fur baby type category um and that's then when we talk about sort of the trauma of death it's no longer sort of euthanizing man's best friend or euthanizing the farm dog Mm -hmm. is now you're actually going through and suffering you know the euthanasia or the death or the traumatic death or you know it's literally traumatic death like hit by cars and you know some of these higher order traumas um you know so again and being exclusively unprepared to handle that degree mm-hmm. um, but then like you said then it sort of feeds in between those two things between the isolation component um, and then the traumatic component is uh, those yeah. two things they feed for several reasons that right. I think again most kids these days they just don't know yeah. they're yeah. just not prepared there's yeah. just not that experience and even if you even if you shadow in a veterinary clinic as you know a high school student or your early college uh, it's still not the same as being in the shoes of the veterinary professional yeah, right. Right. Yeah. you're also kind of protected from it too because I know a lot of times like as a high school student I know and I don't think I ever shadowed or was able to be present for the euthanasia conversation and all of that end of life quality of life talk until I was 
at least pre-vet, if not already in vet school. Like they, sure. they do try to kind of shelter you from yeah. it a little bit because you don't know how someone's necessarily mm. going to react. But mm. I think it's interesting that you bring up the uh, human animal bond spectrum because I had a great example of that last night. I'm sure. We had a caregiver come in that was kind of middle of the, the bond spectrum and I just not judging anything, just yeah. saying that's kind of where she fell. Yeah, yeah. And she actually made the comment because we ended up putting her anim or her the patient down, uh, euthanizing them, and she made the comment like, "Thank you so much for not making me feel judged yes. for making this decision." Yes. Like, and she because she was like, "I've had experiences in the past where people kind of have looked down on our decision, decision of yeah. like what to do or not to do," and I was like. Yeah. No problem, man. <laughs> yeah. Like, and the same yeah. thing, like she was like, I just don't know if I can be present. Like when, yeah. you know, put the yeah. patient down. And I was yeah. like, yeah. whatever you need to do for yeah. your mental health is your prerogative. Yeah, and absolutely. I'm not here to, <laughs> yeah. so, I mean, there is very much the potential for that, like yeah. emotional trauma and, and yeah. bond with every single absolutely. one that you touch. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that was actually a part of our original conversation, Dustin, we had talked about kind of compassion fatigue and like the mm -hmm. wear and tear of the what ifing, right? Cause like if you're outside yeah. of a context of informed consent and outside of a context of a neutral bond spectrum, like I, I can only empathize to a certain degree, but like that sounds horrible. Like having to be the quote unquote professional that's making the decisions for the person, yeah. like that just sounds awful. And I think like, you know, we, we are, we're kind of jumping ahead to solutions a little bit because that yeah. is something that we've yeah. very specifically enacted um, processes to get away from that. Yeah. Um, but uh, one of the things that, uh, if it's okay, if we kind of circle back because, Carlo, you had brought up the idea of how like hierarchy and yeah. these traditional business structures are um, kind of stemming these issues along. Um, Dustin, you're over in San Francisco. Now, I don't know how big your groups are and like how it kind of works from, you know, digital interfacing and all that. Um, but is that something that you're seeing um, as a part of kind of other people's realities? Because, you know, I think we have a pretty good feel for what the industry is. Yeah. But also, is that kind of shared with you? Yeah, well, sorry, I it's I'm a lot of stuff. Yeah, I saw you, I saw you in a French show. Speaking of which. I have both a, a dog and a rabbit, and yes. my dog bear is terrified of the rabbit. Nice. It's sure. kind of the opposite. Yes. So. Nice. yes. Well, is it the one from Monty <laughs> Python? Sure he's okay. Um, but I, um, well, I think with our groups, we try to intentionally keep the size down just because – you, I don't think that you can really get a lot of therapeutic benefit from a group that's too big because I think mm -hmm. everyone has to feel like they're a part of it and everyone has to actually have a little bit of space to share and to and to talk and to contribute because that's how the other members feel like um, everybody's involved and everybody has a vested interest. Yeah. And so there's, you know, I think sometimes people can people can wallflower a little bit from time to time just to kind of gain comfort. But, um, and I, I, I'm sorry, I, I think, uh, that may have gone a little bit away from, 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 uh, from what you guys had, had pinpointed, but, uh, I just, mm -hmm. that's just how we structure. We have, our groups are nationwide. So we have people from all over, all over the States that are meeting together. And it's actually, it, like you mentioned, uh, Carlo, just, that I don't know if we're I don't know if we're just sort of 
uh, fostering this sense of being outside the zip code and and, uh, <laughs> right. and being more cohesive. But um, but one thing, if if I can just have a, a moment to mm-hmm. mention, I, I when I talked with Ben uh, initially, that talking about culture at uh, at your guys' organization, I was actually pretty blown away by the focus on culture mm-hmm. because that really one of the one of the main risk factors according to um one of the models of of uh, of suicidality is a loss of a sense of belongingness or a sense of and a sense of burdensomeness and i think being able to have a culture that is supportive and um and helpful even if there's even if there's conflict from time to time no having having a culture that's set up to where everyone can um, knows that somebody else is there for them mm-hmm. is already, I think, a movement in the right direction. So I don't mean to 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 uh, to advance the discussion. Yeah. No, <laughs> no that's okay. Yeah. That was just one thing that I was yeah. I was really struck by in our yeah. initial discussion. Well, yeah, and we actually say that you have two jobs here mm-hmm. at we know at Paw Health is you sort of have your role and then you sort of have your culture responsibilities. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's what what task are you actually performing within the organization? But then more so is what are you doing to sort of engage culture in a positive way? Um, and we've we've had uh, we've had good loss quote unquote over the years because of our sort of you know perpetual intention of engaging good culture is that sometimes people just don't actually know what that feels like Mm -hmm. so that that i think has been kind of an eye-opener for me at least kind of going through that process of you know trying to really cultivate a a positive cultural environment again we kind of talk about solutions and actions and so on and so forth Mm -hmm. Um, but i mean katie i mean you can attest to that i mean we've had we've had that um where we have you know lost employees and i think that's one of the huge concerns in the veterinary industry is you know when we start talking about culture it's it's like somehow also linked to well we also need someone to fulfill the role so it's like, oh, well, I'm going to go ahead and, and sacrifice culture because I need the role being mm-hmm. filled. Um, but we've like flipped the exact opposite is we need the culture to be filled right. more than we need the role. Yeah. You know? Well, and I and I sometimes worry about the focus in veterinary medicine on, well, how long have the employees been there? I mean, that is a huge push f- for like how to judge culture. Well, if they've mm-hmm. had long-term employees, mm-hmm. that must mean right. there's a good culture because people want to stay. Hmm. And right. And I not would say true. that yeah. is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's, it's not an ageism a, thing. It's not I've like we're trying a, to get grandma fired. No, no, you no, know? no. Like, no, well, it's and not. It, and it's not even, right, yeah, it's not even that because, I mean, there's, they might not necessarily be the, youngest or the oldest employee or you know yeah even though they've been there kind of the longest um and and i think the biggest problem with a lot of that is then they like to push that hierarchy mm-hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. and yeah. The, today's workforce just isn't going to support it you know it's yeah. it's it's the it, what is what is the millennial joke i need to graduate college with five years of experience or something right. like that you know like yeah. it, it does, it's not going to exist you know and they don't want to be held back and they don't want to live in a hierarchy they want to be treated as equals and when we say they it's like we're somehow blaming a generation that they isn't we you know like we want you know <laughs> you like also we also want to be you know like let's be let's be clear um you know but i guess dustin um in that respect kind of talking about culture and kind of hierarchy and that kind of stuff is you know talking about the different groups that um you do work 
work with and um, you know sort of engage with what do you see as being very common cultural barriers or cultural conflict or lack of culture entirely I guess what do you kind of see because like I said you kind of have you know multi-state groups I mean what do you, what do you guys kind of see as being um, a harmonious thread if, if one exists yeah I think one of the threads is is what I think on either diagnosis oh sure or or, or uh, another is how do I deal with with client or with uh, patient owners or um, mm -hmm. what the what the what the common term is but uh, um, the the animals the patient but the, the owner well yeah. traditionally it's owner and our organization will say caregiver mm -hmm. but yeah owners traditionally We're weird and yeah have yeah. our own language here yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes it's just the language of the future but we'll keep going uh, but yes yeah owners traditionally yeah and and just having the conversations with caregivers who, you know, may be either upset, um, having to have conversations about, about billing, which is something that, mm. um, mm -hmm. a very, a lot of other medical professions don't have to deal with. Mm -hmm. and, sure. and that's a, that's a very unique discussion that, that veterinarians have to have. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that, you know, one of the, there was a study that came out that, uh, um, identified, common uh, personality traits across uh, veterinarians mm. one that the, that they were introverted <laughs> two um perfectionist yep and Ow. three <laughs> that they're, they're very very empathic um and with i think em empathy um comes a certain sort of I don't, I don't want to say this in the wrong way, but like a sensitivity mm -hmm. that's there to other people, to other other feelings, to other, you know, being empathic requires us to be sensitive to what others feel and think and believe. And I think that it also sets up for a higher stress situation in in mm -hmm. when there's conflict. Mm -hmm. yeah. And those are a lot of the themes that have been that have been coming up uh, along with this hierarchical uh organizational structure oh. that just emphasizes productivity mm -hmm. right. over everything else. Yeah. I mean, I think just our clinic alone supports those yeah. same data findings. Cause if you look at the disc assessment yeah. for most of our staff, it's yeah. either IC or SC, right? Yeah. We have a, a lot of, we do, we have now three people that are high D um, behavioral sp patterns. Right. Um, but the overwhelming majority of our staff is high S, so big on stability. Right. Um, and we have one person that is low C, so everyone's high attention to detail or within that perfectionist type pattern. Right. Um, we have... But also high wanting to engage like with caregivers and wanting to have, like I know for we, me. Yeah, we have a little bit of a blend on the on the I variable. Gotcha. Um, there is some highs and some lows. Um, but what I think you're more getting at is altruism. Yeah. So we have a ton of that. Um, when we also have um, an overwhelming volume of our people are empathic in the way in which they process data as yep. well so we hit all of those right. things yeah. as a general rule now we have our outliers yeah. which i think we put uh, as an organization a lot of value into because they can kind of offset the flow yeah right as katie's yeah. just laughing over here <laughs> i am but 
But at the same time, I am introverted. I yeah. am yep. perfectionist. Yeah. I am yeah. like I am high empath. I'm positive on the empath, right? Mm-hmm. But I'm lower altruistic, and I'm yep. very high D. Yeah. And so that world kind of yep. collides Col- inside yeah. of me. Yeah. <laughs> I think. And, I think. And oh, sort ahead. of the the sort of the, the consequence of being perfectionistic is it's it's a predisposition to what if. Right. Mm-hmm. To question everything. Yeah, and I, I think, and I don't know whether this is just my perspective on it, but I, I think one of the issues that I see, or at least I have with empathy, empathy is that somehow that is also then processed as responsibility. So I I think I think that's where, you know, a lot of times I get called or, you know, a sociopath or very, very low empathy. Mm -hmm. But I I think that's what it is for me is it's more of like, but if but if I if I can at least understand and understand someone else's emotion um, and understand that they are going through something or, you know, whether it be a caregiver or a coworker or what have you is what on the individual basis, I'm not necessarily just me, but for all the other employees, you know, what is sort of that cultural responsibility? I mean, you have to try to fix everything, yeah. you know, you have to jump in. And I think when we talk about, you know, the, the Ted dynamic, you know, we start to talk about the rescuer. So, and I think that's where, again, I, I have some conflict with a lot of these online forums, because if we're saying that as, a whole we are perfectionist as a whole we have empathy as a whole we have some of these variables it's then a matter of like well well why do we think that we have the ability to engage these things to fix them mm-hmm. and are we rescuing them and what sort of resources do we have or should we have yeah. um, not necessarily as an employer or a co-worker but as an industry and I think again that's where Dustin it you know kind of mm-hmm. comes comes back to you is saying like to really try at least my my perspective is to try to get away from this idea that just because I understand how someone is feeling doesn't mean I'm also qualified to fix it and I think I think I think that's where I see at least personally I see issues within sort of online forums and even within sort of the the work environment at least in some Mm -hmm. capacity is being like you know why uh, and, and maybe this is a really really huge question but you know what what is and why is there sort of this overall hesitation to go outside of our immediate bubble? Is it just that perpetuation of isolation? And is that isolation systemic or is that isolation individual? You know, because we kind of talked about that earlier and the thing is, what is that? Is people just think that there isn't anyone that's going to listen or only these mm-hmm. small group of people can listen? I wonder if it's because change of that magnitude seems daunting. Mm-hmm. I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, especially if you're a perfectionist, right? (laughs) You know. Well, well, and I, I think one of the things that like at least helps around our clinic is we kind of celebrate people's like Mm -hmm. different um, abilities. Mm -hmm. Like, I like yes, Carlo is better at like trauma surgery. Absolutely, Mm -hmm. no no qualms about admitting that. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Have me pick up a dental burr. <laughs> you know, yeah. so it's you know, and that and that is very tactile. You know, at least on the role side, and but again, I agree. I think on the cultural side, you know, just acknowledging that we really do need everyone part of the team, and and I think uh, Dustin, you actually touched on something that kind of hits pretty close for me, um, is that you know we have actively tried and even passively of some capacity um, to never talk to our support staff about numbers. 
So we never talk about production goals. We never talk about, uh, we don't even have negative accrual. We don't have, you know, all these other things that you see in a, in a traditional corporate environment um, simply because we just don't care enough. Like, you know, our, a, a bigger part for us is, you know, again, focusing on that diversity within the staff and understanding, like, like you said, we need some of those really kind of you know, pardon my French, ball busting people to make sure our process is still running. I mean, we are one of the last clinics in the state that isn't patient capping, mm -hmm. you know, so we have to be able to serve in a very, very effective manner. Um, you know, so, so again, I think like I said, just sort of that celebration of diversity or sort of individuality. I think, I think that's what we really try to focus on is that individual strength um, in understanding, you know, again, I know we're kind of getting to the solution side and what it is that we do here, mm -hmm. but, um, um, you know, I guess, again, to kind of pitch it back on saying, you know, are you seeing within different groups or within your experience, are you seeing that variable? Are you seeing not just isolation, but are you seeing sort of a, la a, 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 a lack of identity or a failing sense of identity or, you know, some of those other variables where it's just like, oh, great, I am just a number and nothing really matters and I'm just cool. here to... Sorry, know. just to interject before he answers that question. It was interesting because I actually saved, I saved a snippet from a because I'm, I'm part of a lot of these online veterinary communities, and I, I, there was a very timely post that someone had made, basically very frustrated with the current system, and he kind of postulated, it was interesting, I should kind of summarize it, but he, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I can't like quote it word for word, obviously, yeah. but it was, the premise that he kind of threw out there was that like veterinary corporations that own a lot of these clinics and are continuing to buy up practices and spread, he was like, I, I don't think it's in our best interest that, you know, they keep promoting that it's, oh, it's a lack of staff and we need to keep like funneling more people into veterinary schools and have like more and more veterinarians that are coming out because it's just a lack of people that we can hire. And he's like, does anyone else feel like they're trying to flood the market so that they don't have to they oh, have yeah. an endless number of bodies Absolutely. to work through so that they, they don't mm -hmm. have to pay us as much yeah. because they have an oversupply yes. of veterinarians now. Yeah. And like, he basically just flipped it on its head. That was like, they don't actually care. No, no. like it's, no. it's, it's, no. it's, they want it's cheap labor. Posed as, it's yes. posed <laughs> as a, we're trying to help you by relieving the burden because you need mm. help, yeah. but it's not trying to solve the underlying, like, like you said, why is there an issue? It's just a, well, if we just keep funneling bodies into the yes. system, yeah. then we don't have to like worry about your quality of life and what your salary is and giving you benefits and all these other things. So it was, it was very, like I said, very timely to yes. read mm -hmm. that. I would just say yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. I don't need to postulate. It's just a yes. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, I mean, are you, again, like you said, kind of on a multi-state or national scale, I mean, uh, attesting to that or those variables? I think I see it as a, I see it more so as a fragile sense of identity yeah. mm. of like, you know, I think that if I, if I, if I were there when, when each of the people in our group graduated from, from veterinary school, I imagine they'd probably have a lot different idea for what a veterinarian is than, than they do now. Um, uh, I'll tell I'm, you what, I'm if, saying if... that just, just as a, um, mm -hmm. 
you know, I don't have any empirical data to, to, to back that up, <laughs> no. but it's just just a, a speculation on my part. I, I can I can tell you that you will have um, among at least in my opinion a, a very very groundbreaking study if you grab people <laughs> at uh, undergraduate, you know, bef- uh, before veterinary school, after veterinary school, and then uh, you know make it small, four and eight years out. So you basically just cycle through several graduating classes from beginning to end. <laughs> You'll get your data. <laughs> it's, to, yeah, but to go along with that, and I think that this would maybe just shine more light into again understanding reality. What are the variables that you guys all think would have to be studied? Like, what did it? What is it that we are looking for? Oh, see, that that's is what changing? I was going to ask Dustin. Oh, perfect. As the like, as the actual yeah. mental health professional, yeah. right? I think we talk a lot about well mm-hmm. i need i need better work life balance it would right. be great if we could have benefits for not just doctors but all the staff you yeah. know so that we had better you know support staff retention and on all this whole list of things and i'm i'm not convinced we're looking at the right variables mm-hmm. <laughs> mm. i'd say that i think that the variables should be the environmental context cuz I, I think we we talk about you know, I, I talked about the study that identified common traits, but also want to say that there's a lot of individual variability within those too. But being able to being able to measure how an environment and environmental context affects both just overall well-being and you know, I think you can, I guess you can look at productivity, but I think that there's a lot of different ways that, and it sounds like you guys are doing, are thinking of, of ways that are a little bit more outside of the box to measure quote unquote productivity, but it's more, it's more a sense of, uh, I'd say it, it sounds like it's more of a sense of professional growth. Mm-hmm. So you're measuring more professional growth and well being than, um, than number number based mm-hmm. productivity and i think that's really that's really the the place to to start mm-hmm. um i'm i'm sure that there's there's a lot of other variables that you know researchers like me will try to put in every single thing that <laughs> that's there but but i think if you know i think that that's that's what i think will move the needle is environmental context mm-hmm. yeah, and that was actually so when we had originally met a couple of weeks ago, you had asked me what our what are our metrics that we use, and the only thing I could come up with was gut instinct, <laughs> um, because measuring environmental stuff or like more, I, I maybe it's not the right word, and somebody tell me if I'm wrong, but more yeah. like a sociological variable yeah. versus a like a biological variable. They're I think they're just inherently harder to put numbers on. But I, yeah. Carlo, do you have an yeah, idea? Yeah, I do. I do. <laughs> and I, you know, part part of it is um, again sort of our anti-imperialistic um, perspective on the industry. At least I should say our, but definitely mine. Um, <laughs> uh, so you know, I, I think um, it, one of the things that we talk about, and we try to embrace, and we try to have happen as much as possible is what we refer to as um, on the ground or on the floor administration. So that way you have a constant pulse on what is happening happening culturally within the practice, not by word of mouth, not by uh, you know a, a peer review once a year or twice a year where it's like, okay, uh, so-and-so is going to go up for the review and this review is going to be uh, related to their raise and if everyone's just going to trash them, then this is the only data we have is everyone's just going to say their piece once a year and that's going to be our measurement on how we assess this employee's uh, performance 
performance or sort of cultural, you know, within the environment. So, you know, we've stripped a lot of those away, you know, it's taken a little bit of time, you know, we pulled uh, raises away from performance reviews, we call them performance reviews, not peer reviews, you know, so on and so forth. Um, but having on the ground administration, I think is our uh, greatest asset. So that we're there, we're present, we're in the clinic. It's also why we push local ownership, we push local influence, we push community, we push you know keeping money around so it's in the pockets of the employees, not necessarily a large corporation. So a lot of those things, I think, is how we look at fundamentally measuring, at least like you said, to the gut. Mm -hmm. um, but the other thing is that when you have um, an individual, an employee, a coworker, a professional who is uh, starting to negatively impact culture, and I think. Um, you know, you brought up earlier the what if, you know, the what if, what if this employee leaves? Well, we need this employee. What happens if they leave? What does that mean to our workload? What does that mean to our caseload? Um, and I think what I have noticed quite substantially as a metric, I have heard more laughter and I have heard more engagement, more enthusiasm, um, you know, since we had, uh, uh, you know, uh, offboarded one of our long-term employees, uh, probably about a month, two months ago, something like that. Yeah. But it's like the environment for the staff as a whole, that's the metric. Yeah. It's what is the feel? Are people, how are they feeling when they're coming to work? What are they talking about? Are they not even talking? Are they talking quietly behind closed doors because I can't talk in front of him or her? You know, or is it, you know, is it, do we have these dominating presences that are really oppressing the staff through sort of, you know, whatever it is, a, a traditional sense of hierarchy or some of these other things. So I, I, that's why I just wanted yeah. to expand upon the gut, yeah. you know, as it's, yeah. you know, I, I have noticed it went from, you know, all I could hear was like yipping dogs to now all I hear is laughter. Mm -hmm. And it's like that really kind of struck me where I'm like, all right, you know, yes, it has meant more work, you know, but right. again, it's the same thing as we focus exclusively on culture and role and the what if is not from a negative sense. It's not, well, if we lose this employee, what's all the negative things? It's what if we lose this employee from what do we gain? What are the positive things that we gain? And I don't think yeah. we talk enough about mm -hmm. that. Yeah. And I don't want to just talk about that's just one very specific example of our metrics of culture, but it's more of if we engage culture, what's the best that could come out of it? Mm -hmm. If we engage a performance review system, what's the best that could come out of it? So for I think for me, at least when I go through the problem solving process is I'm a lot of the times blind to the negativity, probably trying to be an eternal optimist, but it's how can this really help us as a whole to do this thing that is uncomfortable? Um, and I think that's, you know, if, if that if that spurs a thought, but I gotta say that would I, be a metric. Yeah. Sorry, it spurs my, one of my thoughts. Yes. So I think, I think one thing that is difficult in all of this, like we've talked about small groups, we've talked about PAW and like, mm -hmm basically trying to be out in front and leading yeah. and drawing as many people to us as possible. But I think part of the issue with all of this is that the veterinary community is not a monolith and you, the group of people that are affected and struggling is so large. And it's like with, with any kind of cultural movement, you look at the struggle of cohesiveness and everybody being on the same page and kind of coming together as one coalition to say this is what we need it's you get a lot of like infighting and bickering and like yeah. trying to kind of go back and forth as you know what what is the most effective and, and what should we be doing and whatever yeah. and i think like i said that part of the problem is that it isn't a monolith and you know you're never going to be able to deal with struggles for everybody in the same way i think you know we are trying to take 
this approach. And like I said, for, for people that are drawn to paw, I think it works for you or it doesn't. And yeah. I don't know why it doesn't work for the people it doesn't work for. Yeah. Obviously they're not around still. Yeah. Um, but like I said, the small group setting and that one-on-one -on -one and like building community is much harder to do on such a large level. And I know there's quite a bit of frustration in the veterinary community with like the AVMA, like the lack of it, like we're stuck at the awareness level and, and mm. don't feel like we're making enough progress in the actual like solutions section. Yeah. But I think that's part of some of the barrier too, is like, how do we take this huge mass of people and unite them under one? We can talk about the PAW education portal. if you want. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I think to, to, to dovetail off of that, I, yeah. I know one of the things that we try to isolate and uh, a variable that is part of our central variable of measurement in our groups is felt support. And I think that, you know, the psychotherapy in general has a similar problem in measuring outcomes. And, you know, it can be symptom reduction or, you know, over the course of therapy or, you know, wh however, whatever myriad of measures we've come up to try and figure out how people change in the course of therapy. And some of it is just, the gut like does this person just feel better mm -hmm. does this person feel supported because if they do then that's a platform from which they can start to sort of that it branches out it allows them to to i guess be more efficacious in they in other purpose. areas too yeah. you know and, and i think there's a reason that uh you know, there was a there was a study on on uh, military veterans coming back from war that the number one protective factor against development of PTSD was social support. Hmm. And, and I think that, you know, stemming from that, we try to just, we want to try and keep it simple and say, if, if people come away from these groups, we, I, I don't know that we can necessarily change the world with, mm -hmm. with our groups. We're trying to, right. we'd like to, I don't know that we necessarily have the scale yet to be able to do that. But if we can have people come away feeling I'm supported, I feel, I feel supported that's a win mm -hmm. for us. Right. Well, and I, one of the things that you had mentioned kind of at the beginning that, um, was a, you know, one, that feeling of support, but then having someone there to like, I don't want to call you the mediator, but having someone there with the skill set, um, you know, in mental health to help work through the, like, whether it's working through the problem or be, you know, providing that safe space for, you know, people to, um, talk, collaborate. I know one huge like shift for me was a few years ago. I went to one of the, there's a, it's a clinical psychologist that's actually, um, works for one of the vet teaching hospitals in, in the country. And she was, um, presenting at a conference and her, the title of her talk was toxic venting. Mm. And everyone around here knows about it. Cause I talk <laughs> about it all the time because it was this huge <laughs> mental shift for me that we can't just everyone. Like I just need to, you know, I just need to vent about this and then you're yeah. going to say your piece and you feel better. But like what, what the point that she was making is it kind of, it can become an addiction and you mm -hmm. need to, you know, then take it to the next level and the next level. And it gets to a point where 
you you are never satisfied. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're never happy after that vent. Yeah. Um, and I think that, um, you know, and, and that was part of the reason she was hired on the vet teaching hospital, right? To help kind of stop the venting and, yeah. and help people towards solutions, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, realistically. Mm-hmm. Um, or at least be able to communicate more effectively to one another, with yeah. one another. Um, and and so I think it's, like I said, I think it's great. I, li- I really like that idea of the smaller groups mm-hmm. where not only do people feel like they're not isolated, they're not alone, um, but then they have someone like you there to help take it to the next step right not get not stuck in right not only are we not alone but we don't need to and i hate to say this doesn't sound it's not exactly what i'm trying to say but we don't need to feel sorry for ourselves we can we can problem solve through this or right it's a coaching mentality versus like and there's a negative connotation to saying victim mentality right because i mean but we we talk about the whole like victim our drama dynamic in the victim role versus like coaching and and that kind of thing. So it's, it's that shift in. Yeah. You said the right word, Caroline. Yes. (laughs) No, I know, but you know what I mean? Like sometimes the words that we use here have carried a different, like we try to take some of the negative connotation away from it. Cause yeah, like telling somebody like you're acting like a victim is almost victim blaming them for (laughs) like, it doesn't accomplish anything. And so trying to be grounded in reality about like a where are we specifically at, what, defined yeah victim, yeah, yeah making sure that right we're, yeah talking exactly. about the same thing so but like i know i'm gonna call you out on this a little <laughs> bit because <laughs> we i know we have talked before about the staff approaching you with feelings yes they have feelings yes. and you're like how do I fix this? Yes. And I know I've said to you previously, sometimes you can't fix it. Sometimes it's just feelings. <laughs> and it's something that uh, I'm going to quote my dad here, like Erwin Rauschendorfer. Welcome yes. to the podcast. Yes. But um, he he's actually called me out on toxic venting before. Like, and, and, and basically I've used my parents quite a bit as a litmus test, especially in previous practice. Cause I've worked at practices that were, I'm not going to say they were toxic practices. It just wasn't a good fit for me. And we, that's ultimately why I left. But my parents have called me out on like, is this you having feelings and looking for a problem and making yourself the victim where you just need to get out and like make a change? Or is this like, genuinely an issue where this needs to be discussed or dealt with or or whatever and trying to separate out that like what is just complaining and what is something that is actionable Mm -hmm. well so and actually dustin to bring that back to you i think along those similar lines a lot when i hear again when people want to talk about the toxic culture and and things like that um how much of our perfectionistic personalities, right? Don't, we, we don't want to be the problem. And maybe right. we're not necessarily the problem. The place isn't, it's just not a good fit for us, right? There, right. there isn't necessarily, I mean, there's always, as people, we can always be better. Clinics, we can always, there can right. always be improvements, but maybe it's just a bad fit. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, and that's- I guess, you know, from a mindset, is there, you know, a way to, allow us to like be okay with that (laughs) 
one of the, I guess, for lack of a better term, treatments for uh, for perfectionism is intentional mistake making. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> becoming becoming more comfortable with with being able to make a mistake, which cultivates a sense of being able to to forgive. And you know, as a, as a psychologist, I'm going to say there's always a place for feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Yep. <laughs> and at the same time, I think I think the the warning sign is whenever there's a feeling of being stuck. So in perfectionism, that's being stuck around a thought around a mistake. In you know, with toxic venting, it's it's being stuck with continually and frequently doing the same thing without uh, a change in outcome. I think that I think that I I don't think that venting is there's is inherently wrong. Mm-hmm. I think it's more of a function of frequency that determines the the adaptivity or maladaptivity. Um, but I think that our emotions also do give us indications for when we're stuck, when we're helpless. And I think that the key word is feeling helpless. And I think that's a lot of times the takeaway that I get from just the, the idea of, of, of victim mentality is just like that somebody feels absolutely helpless against their situation mm-hmm. and they can't do anything mm-hmm. about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and coming from that sense of feeling helpless, that, that can then be an avenue towards, okay, I may not be able to change the situation, but what are the things that I can change about it that will affect my well-being? Mm-hmm. And how can I get unstuck from the stuck place that I'm in? Is that through myself? Is that through asking somebody else for help? I, I used <laughs> I used an analogy with a uh, um, with a veteran that uh, uh, if you've ever if you've ever taken your truck out mudding. You know, for for those of us that were that were born out in the country, yes. it's it's a common it's a common thing. Inevitably, at one point, you're going to get stuck. It, yeah. It's there's two types of people that have gone mudding. Those that those that have gotten stuck, or those that have uh, gotten stuck, those that are liars. <laughs> so, at some point, you need somebody else to pull you out. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, I think that that's a good way to to think about like. At some point, we all might just need somebody to kind of pull us out of a stuck place, mm-hmm. and that's the support element. To kind of go along with, um, I, I think the two variables that stick in my head the strongest with what we talked about previously and today is that that decrease in belongingness and that increase in burdensomeness. Is that the right word? Am I saying that correctly? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think that's kind of what you're getting at is like um, – the, the, so we have a, a group of perfectionists or an industry full of perfectionists and they're being put in these environments, or especially when you pair empathy in that, right? If I lead well, and with empathy. Vet school, and vet school and a like punishment for failure. Cause that's what you had brought up earlier. Like where like, and I was like, it comes from being punished for being wrong all the time in school. Okay. But continue. Um, I, I think that'll play into this. So perfectionist, empathic and then we put them in these environments where um we talk about numbers and we put solutions out of the reach of the people who can see the problem they can define the problem and they can define the solution but they have actually no power to implement the solution does that is that some i mean i think that kind of plays on both it's like 
well, clearly I don't belong here anymore, but also like my presence here in bringing up the fact that this is a problem and this is the solution um, can actually also turn into a burden on the rest of the team because they don't know what to do with it either. And it turns into toxic venting over a period of time where it may have started positive, but then it actually turns into something negative. Am I crazy in trying to put those variables together? Uh, no, I would say that happens pretty commonly in a, in a corporate environment, regardless of the corporate environment. Because if you have a group of people who are like, well, I don't even know why management runs it this way and it needs to be run that way. Yeah. You know, so if you have where, like you said, there's problems and there's solutions being proposed, but the individuals who have the solutions have no power to enact the solutions, then yeah, there, there's absolutely going to be a sense of helplessness. Well, and the other thing to go along with that, is, and now that I'm again gathering these thoughts out of my mouth, with empathy is because of the fact that the metrics are so like kind of undefined where it is just like, I know that this is right. I know that this is wrong. I can't necessarily put words to it, but this is a problem and we need to find a, pro a solution for this or like this is working. Don't take this away. And then they say, well, how is it working? Prove to me how it's working. Prove to me how an ultrasound is going to, you know, how, how you're going to make <laughs> yeah. money with an ultrasound. Right. Yeah. And it's like, it's so hard to put numbers to these more, um, these more soft variables. And then I think that's another thing that can decrease that belongingness and increase that burdensome. And I, I, I love those two words ever since you brought those up a couple of weeks ago, I was like, well, well, that just plays right into inefficient conflict and unnecessary or inefficient process and unnecessary conflict. Um, and it's like, I, is that a parallel? But, um, but yeah, I, I didn't have a question or a leading question. So I'm going to let somebody else talk. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I get, you know, you had, were gesturing towards me when Dustin was talking oh, yeah, yeah. about creating accountability and I forgot to send that chart over to him, but, yeah, yeah. um, there is a big part about how all of this works and yes, is creating accountability and understanding how these pieces work together a solution. Yeah. Yes. But I don't really care. Go. It, yeah. I actually, <laughs> I would be, uh, yeah, obviously probably off cast at this point, but, um, yeah, Dustin, I think one of the things that I, I take a crack at, cause I'm actually kind of revising it right now is we have, um, so taking a step back real quick in paw health we have four core values it's trust respect collaboration and accountability um We've been talking about in the moment accountability for years uh, about how like really on the floor administration, the more we can engage and have accountability in the moment, you don't necessarily need uh, like an after action report. You don't necessarily need case reviews. You don't necessarily need some of these after things if we're taking care of it right then. Uh, but one of the one of the things that we're pushing now is kind of this idea of collaboration and in the moment collaboration. So it's not just a matter of like, I'm going to hold you accountable. It's like we need to talk about and collaborate so that we can all be accountable. You know, so it, it's kind of that more of a communication component to being accountable. Um, but one of the things that has been in process really since the inception of Paw Health is we've had different accountability diagrams, um, whether we talk about, because we, we took a lot from the, the TED dynamic, um, the, the victim rescuer persecutor, and then I forget the old terms. Uh, it was a what? A creator, leader, anyway. Cre yeah, creator, coach, and... Um, 
challenge challenger. challenger. Yeah, that was the old term. We kind of we kind of adjusted a little bit, but long story short, um, is what we had sort of come up with was this flow chart. On so when you were talking about you know your definition of the victim, again, that's very very similar, not to our definition because our definition we kind of pull from the TED dynamic, but it's it's a very deliberate process of getting from an accountable event or this thing that as perfectionists we're fixated upon, and it's like I made this mistake and I can't get through this, or I'm just this is the thing that I'm upset about. Um, yeah. Um, is then kind of coming into that accountable event and saying, so what is our own, and Ben had sort of coined it out as being a fall tolerance, and the fall tolerance is when this accountable event occurs, are you more likely to kind of go in the direction of being someone who has this sense of helplessness or the victimhood sort of in that drama dynamic, or once this accountable event occurs and your fall tolerance actually puts you into being a creator, and that creative process then kind of takes us through forgiveness, it talks us through, you know, solution process, working with your mentor, Tours, working with your leaders. Um, and so we have this whole diagram that I actually like to really kind of get, you know, uh, talk to you about and get your feedback on. It is online. Mm-hmm. I am in the process of revising it, but um, that's one of the things that I think we focus on exclusively. And when Caroline, of course, calls me out on um, this, uh, not <laughs> listening to people's emotions. Um, <laughs> Is that a big part of that is actually like my brain is just constantly geared now towards being a creator. Like I don't, like when I hear emotion, I know this isn't correct. I'm just saying when I hear emotion, I almost always think someone is acting a victim because they think they're powerless. Like they're having these emotions because they think they're powerless. And my perspective is no, actually you're not. Let's focus on what the actual solution is. And if we can get through the solution, then you're not going to have these feelings anymore, which I know is not right. But I'm just saying that, you know, <laughs> When we, wow, when this we, explains a lot of fights. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. can, can we have my wife not be in the yes. room right now? Uh, you know, uh, but anyway, so that's like I said, just kind of talking about creating accountability. When you're kind of talking about that, is you know, we talk about the, the metrics of culture, but I think you know, for us to kind of take out of this and start to talk about like the solutions that we have available, and of course, I make the joke about our education portal. But I think what I what I see is the value and what we're trying to do, and I know you guys are trying to do as well, is um, you know, for me to say you know, to fix an entire industry, you had mentioned earlier that it seems a very daunting task. Um, I don't think so. I I think that if we have have a solution or a process that can be applied locally, something that can be applied in the small group setting, because if you can fix the ground floor, because for us, we have um, an inverted org chart. So as we put administrative at the bottom and all of our support staff is supported. So they are the top of our pyramid, not the bottom. So we, again, fundamentally feel that the solution comes from having process. And that's where when I hear of people saying, well, maybe I wasn't a good fit at this clinic to me it always rings the next question but why mm-hmm. and if we have a if we have a tool that says this tool is actually a universal problem solving tool and this universal mm-hmm. problem solving tool actually allows us to say hey what they're doing in San Francisco what they're doing in Boston the fit that we have in northern Minnesota to the fit that we have in Louisiana those you it's going to be a hard like I am not going to function well in southern Florida it's going to be way too hot I'm going to hate it <laughs> You know, but if we talk about, you know, from kind of this work environment, that's what, like I said, I'd really like to kind of engage on that to say, hey, you know, there is this thing that we have used internally. And and I feel that, again, if we have feel if we have this thing that, again, is a universal tool that allows it to be universally um, applicable in very specific scenarios, um, I think that's what is the ultimate solution to the industry. Because, again, what you're kind of talking about in these small group settings is uh, having, you know, having 
having them come forward with a tool or something that they can come from. And if, even if that's just a matter of I feel like I'm a part of something, um, but ultimately it's it's not being powerless. And how can we have influence? How can we change those things around us? Because you had kind of said when people start to understand themselves, they branch out. And it's like, well, if we can start to encourage more of the branch out in our organization, we call it tier four, but more of the branch out where it's just like, hey, if you're struggling with something, I bet you someone else is. And how have you positively engaged that? And how have you changed your own life? But also, how can you continue to change the team? And how can we have that local influence? Mm -hmm. So that's why, like I said, to kind of you know, uh, uh, discuss on that, I guess, I don't even know where the question yeah. is on that. I know I kind of went off the rails, but you know, I guess part of the question, at least in, in some capacity to you is, um, would that be a asset to have that type of thing exist to universally be applicable, um, you know, to some of these clinics or to some of these individuals or to the industry as a whole, um, directed towards engaging and understanding feelings exist, but then also into having a roadmap on what to do next. I think so, because I think that having a template makes change a little less daunting mm -hmm. because it says, okay, somebody has done this and they've been successful. So maybe that makes it more feasible for me to be able to do that and be successful. Um, from a from a mental health standpoint, I see, I see sort of a universal process like that as a preventative mental health mm -hmm. treatment strategy. Right, because you're 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 taking care of a lot of variables and factors that play into um, when people have uh, mental health challenges, mm -hmm. and so I think that that I think it's hugely hugely applicable. I will say that I think it I think something like that has to be flexible enough to fit into uh, to adapt to the different cultures that is deployed. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. To to be able to be able to embrace the the spectrum of mm -hmm. personality factors, yeah. but also still be flexible enough that it's the same framework. Yep. It's just adaptable enough to fit yeah. them into that yeah. framework. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's even when we talk about our star chart too, because different teams are going to emphasize consistency or competency or you know some of those other variables that we have as measures of success. It's not like you said; it's not like binding everyone up into being like, if you know, we do it this way, so you have to do it this way. No, I agree with you. It, uh, universal tool, I think, is is again. Uh, well, yeah. And that's what that tool is, which is why I think, and I think that we've had that intention within Paw Health as a whole, it not even like necessarily like applying it to different cultures or different clinics, but it's been like every scenario has got these little idiosyncrasies. Well, the fact, the yeah. fact that it has uh, taken new life, right? Carlo's currently working on the next working model mm -hmm. of this oh, absolutely. process. I mean, it's... <laughs> I'm going to make this one knowing there's going to be another one. <laughs> right. you know, but right. it's, it's only because, again, I think part of it is, you know, my idea of perfectionism, and again, this is just how I view perfectionism, is that, that I, already, I already know what the perfect thing is. I just know that I haven't gotten there yet. You know, so it's, I don't know if that's the wrong way of thinking about it, but it's that's not it's, the way most yes, people think of but it, it's, but it's being open <laughs> to the idea that what I'm currently working around right now, this is something that I'm putting a ton of time and effort into. Um, it might not actually work as well as I think it's going to work. And when it doesn't work as well as I know it's not going to work, it's going to be better the next time because I'm already accepting of the fact that it's not going to work right. well. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's, it's more of just sort of embracing that idea. So you're exactly right. You know, yeah. it's just being okay with letting it go. 
you know, yeah. but, but knowing that it moves towards something better each time, I think, I think that's the, that's the idea. So I think part of Carlos struggle specifically or the frustration that you feel when people have feelings and get stuck comes from the sense that you are trying you your whole goal is to empower people you want people to feel empowered and know that they already have all of the tools in their toolbox to to fix it and to and to make you know yeah get rid of the problem or or, you know make change for themselves and me even being one of those tools you know, the team being one of those tools. Yes, I know. That's fine. It's such a joke right now. I know, now. I know. It's, a, it's, a, it's definitely like a 90s kids joke. You just called yourself <laughs> yes, a tool yes, on, yes, on yes, the yes. internet. That's fine. I don't remember what I was talking <laughs> yeah. about. So, yeah. Sorry. So, no, yeah. I, it was just I an extent of, I, yeah, yeah. Yeah, what you're saying. So, yeah. just saying that, like, Carlo's goal is to, like, he wants everyone to feel empowered. Mm-hmm. And so when people come to him... Right. Wanting to talk about feelings, it's like, okay, but what's the problem so right. we can get to the solution? And right. I want to skip all this middle business. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> actually, I mean, because I, I have a couple of like friends and former coworkers and classmates from school, and I've struggled through all of this my own self on my career journey um, with basically there was somebody I was talking to recently and they were like, oh, I'm so envious of like you and your current job. And I just feel like you have this like level of mentorship that I'm so jealous of. And I wish I had the like opportunity to do it. And I was like, you need to get yourself a Carlo. And then I was like, actually I'm going to channel Carlo and tell you that you should just do that. Yeah. Everything you said just now that you want to do, that you're scared to do, he would just tell you to do it. Like you should just lean into that because that's all you do is say, just lean into the discomfort and like run with it. Yeah. But it was just, that's been kind of what I've taken away from it. And like what you've kind of mentored me to do is like, stop being scared and just like, we talked about jumping off the cliff. Like yeah. you don't know if your parachute's going to inflate and what's going to happen and you might die at the bottom, but it's okay. <laughs> like <laughs> right. not really, not yeah. really. Like, yeah, yeah. you know, it's, it's, you're so hung up on what happens after yeah. and the what the ifs, what ifs. Yeah. What ifs. Yeah. And so right just empowering, right. <laughs> empowering someone to, to actually like take the leap and to know that they already have everything that they need to be successful. Well, and actually, so I do think that, yeah, kind of comes full circle with Mm -hmm. what Dustin was saying about people feeling stuck, right? So Mm -hmm. we've got people get into a practice, get into a place in their professional lives where they feel stuck and then they start the what ifs. Yeah. Cause right. So if I want to make a difference, if I want to change, what if, what if, what if, what if, and it even, it creates more paralysis than actual movement forward. Um, I think a lot of the times. Yeah. And I I think those are the things that feeling stuck is what really leads to compassion, fatigue and burnout. Yeah. Feeling powerless is the number one factor. Purpose and hope. Yeah. 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 Which we, we did a whole, um, two parter on the book grit, which you and I had kind of talked about as well. Like, that concept of losing hope is, is I think that in like that, the feeling of powerlessness are pretty tied together. Um, but before we want to run away on the way in which Riolo addresses feelings, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt because I think that it's a strategy. It's not just a reaction yeah. because, um, and Dustin, I'm actually really curious kind of what your take on this 
method is, um, is basically I see it as um, it's real, especially when you get outside of just our clinic, like culturally speaking, I think that there is a lot of things that are perpetuating us towards the idea of being powerless. There's a lot of things that are in our lives from a media perspective, especially that tell us that we can't fix the problems that are in our lives. We are victims. We need to rescue those that are around us. Blah, dee, da, dee, da. Um, because of that, we have developed a propensity to see problems as insurmountable. And when you say, I don't care about your feelings, what's the solution? It's not to say that the feelings don't matter. It's to say, you can solve this. You just have to take yourself out of that super, maybe call it irrational state. Because yes, like this is stressful. This, like, I don't know how to handle how all of this feels, but at the very least, here's like three rational variables and I can hold on to those. And if I can, if I can develop a solution, maybe the feelings will make sense a little bit later down the road, or I won't have to deal with that level of feeling again next time that this problem happens. I like, to me, it's like if you're training a dog, how to, how, you know, walk on a leash, like sometimes it's just like they pull really hard and it's like, oh crap, I can't go that far. And like the, the pro, the solution is just don't go there. Right. Versus if you have a dog that continually, continuously pulls and you have to, you have to coach them back to, you know, to, to essentially walk the right way. That's different. Like that's a, that's, you know, maybe you can do that. I don't really know. I've never seen it. Um, I've never had to see it thankfully, but, um, I guess, am I crazy in thinking that that is a a semi like therapy essentially to that reaction of, I don't know what to do with these feelings. And is it even remotely effective if that's what it is for me specifically? I mean, just in general, Oh. But I was actually curious what Dr. Kieschnick's yeah, uh, yeah. opinion is on it because that's, I mean, that's that's your world. Yeah, no, I think uh, from what I from what it sounds like, you know, it sounds like the way that you guys you guys address it does works. I think I might I might try, like my approach would probably be to like, what are the emotions telling you? Because mm-hmm. I think emo- the emotions are definitely they're messengers for us. Right. And they're often messengers for I'm I, I'm lacking the resources in this moment to really address what the stressor is in front of me. And it's my body's way of saying, like, hey, I, I can't like, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I have enough. Mm-hmm. And being able to really to. OK, so where am I going to find some additional resources where I'm going to find like like Carla, like you're saying, like, where what's this problem problem strategy that I can develop? that can actually give me some more resources and reduce this intensity of, mm-hmm. of, of the alarm that's telling me that, yeah. that I, I, I've got nothing left. No, I think that's pretty fair. I'll, yeah, I'll kind of merge those two things and yeah. even kind of answer the mm-hmm. question a little bit is, no, I, I think you're right. I, I, I absolutely recognize when emotions exist. And I, that's why I think I joke by calling myself a tool because <laughs> I understand like, you know, to just, you know, when someone comes to me with an emotion, I say, okay, what's the solution? Like I, the question actually more comes out of uh, a desire for me to hear, I don't know. Because if, if someone comes to me with an emotion and they're like, you know, and, they, and I'm like, okay, what's the solution? They're like, we need to do this. Cool. You've actually come to me with a solution. But if they're like, I don't know. Cool. Let's problem solve it. Mm-hmm. So, and I, I think, um, uh, I, I think Dustin, you're saying it uh, more eloquently than I am, you know, is that it is, uh, you know, it is an alarm. Emotions are an alarm. And 
I think part of where I'm at is just constantly geared towards kind of the solution based outcome um, is is beset in that is mm-hmm. saying that, well, it's not so much like if, if you could have solved this problem, you wouldn't have actually been coming to me right now. Yeah. You know, and it's like, OK, well, uh, since you are coming to me, part of me thinks, well, maybe you're coming to me because you want me to help. Right. Um, and sometimes they don't. But sometimes, you know, it's just they just need to say and then they're off doing something else. Right. Um, you know, and I think what I'm sometimes I fall victim to is that I often overemphasize a problem when like I'm like, oh, this is a big problem. But it's actually this is actually just kind of a really small thing. I just needed to get off my chest. And it's like, well, I just went in this whole other direction with it. You know, that you tried be, to fix it. Yeah, I tried to fix yeah. a bigger thing that I thought was related to this smaller thing. Uh, but no, it doesn't. Actually, I, I completely agree with you is is, is on that is on that that sort of model and saying the motions being a significant red flag is that something is winding us up, something is gearing us up. Mm-hmm. What is that thing that's winding or gearing us up? And is there, um, I think, uh, Ben, this this goes way back and we've mentioned a few times, is, is this a Paul problem or is this an industry problem? Mm-hmm. Well, it's more of, is this an industry problem? Is this a Paul problem or is this an individual problem? Yeah. You know, so, and when we talk about the individual, that's where again, we talk about in the moment of collaboration, in the moment uh, accountability is trying to identify those tools to being like all right cool something's happening right now i mean because we had gotten just most recently we had gotten feedback from a couple of our uh lead staff within our our caregiver support staff our front staff and it's like this and this and this and this i mean we hammered out i mean between us i mean between phone scripting to Mm. call system to all that i mean we knocked it out in 48 hours hours, and it was a substantial change to process Mm -hmm. because it was like oh my god emotions are running high cool what's the problems we don't know how to fix it cool let us do our thing Mm-hmm. And now I would say it's been a complete flip, you know, at least it, it's at least on its way. Yeah. Um, but you know. I, I don't know that that always exists. Well, I, I know it doesn't always exist outside of PAW yeah. because that's something that I have struggled with and had to find kind of in my past career is you get so frustrated and stuck and then you're all you're feeling is all of these emotions that you kind of lose your way as far as trying to find the solutions you get trapped in the hurricane and having i think the goal of some of these organizations and therapy and group sessions and everything is to create connections so that you can build these i always talk about having litmus tests in my life and so having people that i can like voice those feelings so then we can kind of um distill out of that because i know i've talked to carlo about this specifically with failure mindset i was worried that in one of my previous practices that i had a failure mindset that i was like i i am the barrier to myself moving forward and I think this is where you have to be kind of careful with the whole like victim mentality, mm-hmm. like insurmountable barriers and all that stuff is that sometimes you do have barriers in front of you. And I, I think the goal of our kind of mentality is that you never have all barriers. Like you may have some, mm-hmm. but you have to, you're, you always have a path that's open to you. It may just be hidden or you may yeah. not, not be thinking outside of the box enough as far as finding a solution. Mm-hmm but you do realistically have some insurmountable barriers. Mm -hmm. And so the conversation that we had had previously was you had said to me, no, you don't have a failure mindset. That's not your barrier. You have a growth mindset in a failure environment. 
I felt stuck because I wasn't able to influence or make change in the environment that I was in and felt helpless, powerless. And so my solution that I ultimately had was like, I'm out. Right. I need to find a new environment. Right. Right. Yeah. I guess so. with that, because um, we are roughly at about an hour or so, I didn't want to end this. In, now, I think that you and I, Dustin, have the intention of doing this on a more frequent basis um, and potentially having a room of five again, which is awesome. But, um, but before, because I think that that's a good transition into what the Shanti group is. And I want to give you the opportunity to explain to everybody that's listening or will listen here in the future about what that group is, because I think that it's a little bit of that sounding board. So uh, Dustin, tell me a little bit about what the the, the goal in, of the Shanti group is and kind of how you do that. Not, not, to be, um, not to be political, but I'm gonna answer that question by first saying another thing, but I'll come that's, back to that's it. That's fine, it's good. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I'm I, I'm big on um, on interrelatedness, um, mm. and I think that things just in the world in general are, are are interrelated. And I think that what we're trying to do at Shanti is really on in a social support level. Um, but what I see you guys doing, um, and please correct me if it, if it, if I'm getting misinterpreting this, but you guys are approaching things from an organizational and even a systematic level, but all of those things play together to affect the person. I look at it kind of like as a, as a combination lock, Mm. like there's a set of numbers that if they, if they fall in the right place, they result in being stuck or, or, or even uh, worse uh, mental health outcomes. Mm. And so what we try to do at Shanti is on the individual level, help people, get supported and by getting supported feel like they have more resources and more coping strategies to address the situations that they're in one of the actually interesting findings in our uh, um when we when we collected the data further for our pilot was that as at people's felt support um increased and their just sort of overall well-being increased but their ability to influence the situations that they're in actually remain the same. So, you know, in some of the environments that you're in, you may not be able to affect different aspects of it, but you can affect, you can affect some things within it. Mm -hmm. And that's part of our goal is to help is to, is to help people um, come to those answers by just talking with each other. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of a lot of what we do in the group is it does not come from from the mental health professionals. It comes from peers talking to peers like hey, actually I was kind of in a situation like that. Here's what worked for me. Um or like actually it sounds like that actually may not be sort of the environment that you want to be in. And um and so facilitating that discussion I think is really the the key to understanding that there's more support and resources out there than than just being isolated. Mm-hmm. Carlo, you're the guy that knows all about interdependentness of all these variables. <laughs> so I, I don't. I mean, if you want, you can industry overview kind of. I, yeah. I, I think there's a lot of. I, I think that there's a lot of um, overlap. I yeah. guess is the easiest way to put it between. Mm-hmm what's happening in San Francisco and across the United yeah. States with the Shanti group and, and what we're doing. And yeah, we're, we are, we're sort of approaching it from two different levels because yeah. for us, it's like, well, we 
you built PAW because it's like, well, an organization also needs to impact this change. And then we need to push that up into the educational system. We need to push that up into the industry and doing it as an individual is significantly more difficult than it is to do it as an entire company. Right. I'd say it's two sides of the same coin. Yeah. 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 But yeah, and that's, yeah. So we're also doing it on an individual level, yeah. maybe not to the, the, um, the, the degree that the Shanti group is, yeah. but I think it also exists, but like, that's no, I, th I think actually, uh, I think Dustin hit the nail on the head. It's a combination lock. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I always make the joke that I would run a failing business in Boston. I don't, I don't know how the locks work down there. <laughs> You know, I mean, honestly, you know, but it, it kind of comes back to the same thing as I completely agree. The the interconnectedness interconnectedness uh, between those things that we have uh, set out on the industry overview, um, at least from my perspective and the perspective that we kind of founded our organization on, um, are fairly universal. Mm -hmm. You know, just what are those barriers that we're seeing as a whole? And, you know, how are we, you know, again, how are we making our way through the university? How are we, you know, coming out into one to three to five practices? What is this? Who am I? You know, I think there's, like you said, and I, th and I think my, uh, not necessarily just my fear, but I think the ultimate reality that has been shown within the industry is that it it does end with mental health results. You know, I, I, I just, I, I think whatever the combination is universally is ending there. Um, whether it be in San Francisco, whether it be in Northern Wisconsin, where it be in Louisiana, is that they, for the most part, while the combinations may be different, we're all unlocking the same thing. Mm -hmm. You know, it's all, we're all walking through the same door, mm -hmm. you know? So I, I think, um, yeah, I, like I, I just, I completely agree with, with, with that, with that idea that, um, you know, it's for me, it's again, just coming back to solutions. I, yeah. I still feel that there's a universal solution uh, for these, um, you know, that it's going to be, it's going to work on the local level, you yeah. know, and that's, I think, I think it comes back to small groups. I just, that's again, part of my, my anti-imperialistic perspective is I just, I, I refuse to believe that there is going to be a healthy environment when a corporation owns 150 different practices. I just refuse to believe um, because it doesn't exist currently. And it's not to say that it can't in the future, but if we have these environments that are exclusively driven by production and by numbers and what is the outcome, how, you know, how much are we turning per invoice and all these things, if that conversation doesn't change, change, then we can go ahead and just assume that currently veterinary medicine in the 2020s is the human industry in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. Like it's, we're, we're only 30 years away from all the stuff that's happening on the human side. We're not that far away. Mm -hmm. We've always made the joke that as an industry, we lack or lag behind the human profession by about 20 years. So it's either we stand up and start to make an impact now, um, or we're going to be stuck with the results. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's just a matter of identifying, um, you know, I think, I think combination lock is one. I think Rubik's cube is another, you know, is, you know, it's, uh, we got all the colors. That's probably more appropriate. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. We got all the colors of the rainbow, but mm -hmm. you know, it's, um, yeah. So that, like I said, I, I, I think in, you know, a universal approach is a solution. Well, and I, and I think that that provides us a good kind of jumping off point into hopefully another podcast with you, Dr. Kieschnick, because like, I think that there, you know, we can get into numbers of like what the actual reality of like, um, you know, veterinary mental health is at, but we can also Google those things. Like it took me 20 minutes to write down a lot of numbers. They're not really great. We'll just stop with that. Yeah. Like we, I think we've acknowledged that there is a, uh, there's a significant gap 
right? And and I th- it, within the reality of um, fulfillment for veterinary professionals, within like being able to actually impact and make change, um, and and then that's leading to these negative or you know when we can't unlock the combination lock, these negative um, mental health events. Um, but we also have solutions. And I think that the next one, if you would be so kind as to um, uh, provide us your time again, is like, well, we're going to throw some solutions at you that we have already done. Because yeah. I think we kind of did that uh, at least in a, a little bit here already. And yeah. um, I don't think we're too terribly far off. But I would really, really love your input on some of these other things that we're doing to see, you know, maybe maybe we're blind to something that we're doing. Maybe it's maybe in a, a positive or a negative way. So if you would be uh, down with that, you don't have to commit to it live yeah. on air. I get <laughs> right. that. Put high, him on the spot. High, high pressure scenario. But yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess with that, any. Anybody else have any final thoughts as we kind of wrap up podcast 64? No, pretty good. No, nothing. Yeah. Carol, nothing. It, I mean, you're still been awake. It's a pleasure to uh, to talk with you guys. I think yeah. I think what you guys are doing is fantastic and outstanding as a thank you as a person in the mental health field. Like, I, it resonates with me, and uh, I, I enjoy these conversations. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Good. Thank you. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, it's it's been a it's been a little bit, Carlo, but yeah. you are typically the guy that takes us out uh, yeah. on these. Yeah, so if you can. would be so kind okay. to give us a fantastic outro, okay. I'd be more than happy to let you. All right, all right. <laughs> Obviously, I'd like to thank our our guest here, uh, Dr. Dustin Dustin uh, Kishnick, and of course uh, Caroline, Katie, and Ben again today. So, all right, thanks to all you guys who uh, watched us live and uh, those who view us after. But uh, we'll catch you next time. Cool.